Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and this is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. And today we're speaking with Tatiana Burr, who is the Moses and Mary Finley Research Fellow at Darwin College in Cambridge, who came up at the University of Sydney before that, and has been working for many, many years now on ancient automata in the Greek and Greco-Roman traditions. Tatiana, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Earl. It's a great pleasure to be here. I wanted to start this interview with a couple quotations from the Hermetic Asclepius. This is a Latin work, which we know is a translation of a Greek work. It's a dialogue between Asclepius, who's a sort of Greco-Egyptian quasi-god, quasi-sage figure, being instructed by his teacher, Hermes Trismegistus. And one of the things they talk about is ensouled statues or living statues. So the first passage I wanted to read is Asclepius 24. Are you talking about statues, Trismegistus? Statues, Asclepius, yes. See how little trust you have. I mean statues ensouled and conscious, filled with spirit and doing great deeds. Statues that foreknow the future and predict it by lots, by prophecy, by dreams, and by many other means. Statues that make people ill and cure them, bringing them pain and pleasure as each deserves. Okay, so that's a funny take on statues. And then later in the same work, we have 38, Asclepius 38. And the quality of these gods, who are considered earthly, what sort of thing is it, Trismegistus? asks Asclepius. And Trismegistus tells us, it comes from a mixture of plants, stones, and spices, Asclepius, that have in them a natural power of divinity. And this is why those gods are entertained with constant sacrifices, with hymns, praises, and sweet sounds, in tune with heaven's harmony so that the heavenly ingredient, enticed into the idol by constant communication with heaven, may gladly endure its long stay among humankind. Thus does man fashion his gods. End of quote. Now, the reason I wanted to speak with you is because your work is absolutely fascinating in its own right, but from my perspective, it holds out the promise of really helping me get my head around what they're on about when they're talking about mankind fashioning his gods <laughs> in the form of statues. Um, because you've worked on this fascinating technology of, well, automata in in Greece, going, going right the way back to Homer and, and stuff like that. So maybe the first thing we could do, because I dare say the majority of our listeners, like me, are pretty ignorant about the tradition of Greek automata, so maybe if you could just describe your work in a kind of nutshell to to someone who's never heard of you before. Yeah, so absolutely. We know sure. Um, well, I hope that our conversation will help a little bit um, solve solve some of these mysteries, Earl. One of the reasons why our our two research interests are kind of nice to bring together is that I work on a period much earlier than than your interests. So. Together, we can kind of try and unpack this topic from a really broad diachronic perspective. But um, I would say, so I'm a Greek cultural historian, and my main research interests are in the intersection between ancient mechanics and ancient religion. So the question that I constantly ask is how man-made machines, and I take that term to be, you know, taken really broadly, man-made object, man-made machines, mechanics, were put to the service of kind of religious context, were put in, in, into religious context in order to manufacture divine presence. And one of the kind of case studies that, I, that I've looked at, this is 
one of the earliest case studies that I launched into is to think about automata because automata appear, as you, you, you mentioned, in our, uh, some of our earliest Greek texts. So in Homer, famously, this is kind of probably the most well-known example, Hephaestus, you know, the, the uh, blacksmith, divine blacksmith of the Olympian gods, fashions, tripods um, that make their way to a, the divine assembly and back again of their own accord. And he has these kind of bellows that are able to act again autonomously. Um, and this tradition of, of kind of self-animated objects also um, finds counterparts in statues, which I guess is where our research um, interests coalesce. So you have things like guard dogs to, to a palace that are said to to be alive and handmaidens that are also said to have news in these kinds of stories. But what I'm interested in is then figuring out where those sort of mythic precedents or how they coalesce, if they do coalesce, if they interact with, if they uh, inform the mechanical tradition that comes a little bit later, kind of takes off in the Hellenistic period, where we actually get, for the first time, texts that are dedicated entirely to describing the construction of ancient automata. And what are now, these texts, briefly? What Can you just yeah. tell us some of these texts? Absolutely. So, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of them. Yeah. Um, so, the only extant manual is by Hero of Alexandria, and we can date, well, the, the date is somewhat controversial, but the scholars seem to think that it's about a first century AD text. Now, we we do know that there was, that, that Herod didn't pioneer this genre, that he was writing in a genre that already existed, because in his own text, he refers to improving models presented by a predecessor called Philo of Byzantium, who was probably writing around 200 BC. And possibly even before that, we have Tisibius, who was writing uh, a generation earlier. But unfortunately, we have to rely on, on Herod to kind of reconstruct n- not just what these machines were, but also the genre, um, which are two kind of distinct but interesting questions, the machines themselves and the machines as written in the text. Um, and in this text, Herod of Alexandria de- describes two different automata. He describes what he calls a stationary automaton and a moving automaton. The stationary automaton is a sort of miniature theatre. Um, and it, it basically, of its own accord, shows you um, a whole version of, of a play, of an ancient tragedy. And his moving automaton is essentially a shrine to Dionysus that rolls forward, it's sort of shrine set upon a, um, a kind of column. It, it comes forward, uh, Dionysus has wine that, that spurts from the top of his thyrsus and milk that pours out of, you know, and, and there's a panther lying at his legs and a fire spontaneously combusts in front of him and maenads dance around him and then he, he the object, retreats back to its original starting position. It, it, sorry, I should have said, it, it performs this twice. Once facing one way, turns 180 and performs the other way and then, and then retreats back. So the question is, to what extent does, do these two objects described speak to our Homeric example or indeed to other examples of the anecdotes that we have, not just in epic, but in philosophy, um, in, in history, in, in lots of other genres? What's the picture of this phenomenon that we're getting at? Is there something continuous or should we sort of see a break? And then where your expertise comes in, Earl, is how does that then transform post the Hellenistic period and once we get into late antiquity? So in Hero of Alexandria, we have this this thing that reminds me a bit of those um, 
really elaborate medieval German sort of clock on the town square type mechanisms where sort of like a guy, a knight in armor will come out and like hit the bell and then like some, some girls in, in frocks kind of dance around and then it all happens and then they all go back sort of every hour on the hour kind of thing. Is that sort of the idea? This is sort mechan- of the idea and it's certainly the inspiration for later automata were rediscovering Hero's text, for example. Right. Now, in the Greek intellectual tradition... In Homer, we already have these sort of, well, you you mentioned statues that have noose. Um, Now, listeners will know if they go back right back to the beginning when we spoke to Richard Seaford on the sort of birth of the idea of the soul, that in Homer, um, there isn't like a unified soul for for a human being or a statue. There's lots of different kind of organs that are faculties, propides and thumos and noose. So... When you hear noose, don't think of noose as theorized by a Platonist. We'll get to that when we get to late antiquity. But right now, it's some some form of being able to think, right? Or being able to exercise reason, I guess. Is that what we're looking at with these statues in Homer? I mean, these are sort of magic statues, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I think that you're right. I, I certainly think we have to be careful in, you know, putting a, a platonic vision of noose too early into these objects. And I think what's really fascinating is the breadth of self-animated objects that you get in Homer. So not all of them are statues with noose. So Hephaestus's tripods, um, first of all, don't take human form. But really interestingly, Hephaestus puts wheels on them. Hmm. Hephaestus, who's a god, why couldn't he just, you know, wave his magic wand anachronistically and get them to, to move in the way that he wanted? Why did he feel compelled to put that mechanic element onto the object and then if you think even more broadly let's think of something like Daedalus's statues who are said to run away right and this is clearly something that has to do with unpacking an art historical tradition of naturalism in Greek statues but they as far as I as as far as I know um it is more about the human body and the human form and the ability to move once you are you know endowed with limbs rather than having a noose that allows you to think about how to escape Right? So there are the really interesting ways in which we need to, I think, distinguish between these different examples and not lump them all into one as sort of, oh, the Greeks were interested in, in animating statues full stop. They, right. I, there's a real kind of sophistication in the diachronic picture that develops. Mm. Now, there's two things I'd like to ask you in terms of fleshing out what's going on in the Hellenistic period. On the one hand, we have really, really sophisticated workshop traditions, I'm going to say, who can produce things like the Antikythera mechanism, right? Which, although we only have one Antikythera mechanism, it's blatantly obvious that this could not have been a one-off. This had to have been developed over decades of work and experiment and improvement and refinement, it seems to me, right? Because we're talking about incredibly well-machined, interlocking gearing systems that um, have a very small margin of error and mm-hmm. can can do things like predict mechanically predict eclipses and stuff like this. And so that's one thing. What's, what's going on technically? What's, what's kind of the evidence for, for the ability of people to make crazy, amazing mechanisms? And then my other question is about what kinds of precedents do we have for the idea that statues might be alive, right? Because by the time we get to our theurgists and the hermetic author of the Asclepius, there's, there's a strong idea informed by 
philosophic ideas about the soul and stuff like this, but but taking on, as it were, a life of its own, haha, that a statue can really be brought to life in a completely literal sense. This statue now has a soul, it's alive. So I'd love to know the, what your take on the background of that is as well. Yeah. Um, okay, on your first question on, on the sophistication of kind of Hellenistic scientific and, and engineering cultures, uh, I think that a lot of this came with patronage, right? So particularly at the Ptolemaic court, we know that there was a lot of, of money and energy invested in, in scientific uh, pursuits. And we know this from a range of angles, but let's just take from the mechanical text kind of angle, often, um, particularly in texts to do with siege machinery, warfare machinery, we get kind of allusions to the fact that, uh, oh, well, this is written under um, the patronage of, of some kind of wealthy Hellenistic ruler. When we think as well about the uses of spectacular automata, so Hand in hand with the, the, the text of Hero of Alexandria that describes the construction of these automata, we have historical anecdotes that tell us a little bit more because Hero's text is devoid of context. He doesn't tell us what kind of situations these objects might be deployed in. Um, whereas we have these bizarre anecdotes here and there in history. And I think through piecing the two together, we can start to understand that often it was in situations where there was a royal patronage behind it that, you know, hosted an event, often a religious festival, a procession, for example. And so this was part and parcel as well of power and political power, a demonstration, kind of conspicuous consumption in that in that sense. So that's sort of your first question. Your, your second question as regards to kind of unpacking the idea of, of the, the ensouled statue, the alive statue. I mean, one of the things that we can't ignore here is divine cult statues. Um, no, so indeed. Cult <laughs> cult statues um, were thought not just to represent the god in Greek religion, but to be the god, right? So in, they had, sorry. How so? How so? Because I've heard this claim many times. Mm -hmm. Authors like Nilsson, who, who's a, a favorite scholar of uh, Greek religion of mine, uh, have, have put this forward. But it seems to me that there's a difference between the way the Greeks think their statues are the god and, for example, the Egyptians, who... So to illustrate what I mean, the Egyptians have this this rite of the opening of the mouth where there, there's a, a specific specialist who's the only guy who's allowed inside the, the sanctuary. He might have some uh, guys he's training up as well. He might have like a understudies, but it's basically just this one guy. He goes in every day, does this ritual in the morning and in the evening, which basically kind of reminds the god that it needs to stay in the statue, I guess. So the implication is if he didn't do this, this very involved temple-based cultic practice every day, the god would just get out of there. And then you just have something that looks like the god, but isn't the god, right? So there's more than one way to say that the statue is the god. So what, how is the statue the god for the Greeks? Mm. Mm. So bouncing back just off your Egyptian element, we can, we can kind of offer a ritualistic um, explanation as well in Greece in the sense that uh, there is also lots of evidence of treating the cult statues as alive, of dressing them, the peplos of Athena being, being a great example there, um, parading the statues through the cityscape in procession, being the, a way of kind of giving this god a, 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 an animation through the the, the city over which it looks. Um, you think of processions of the great Dionysia or the Panathenaia in that sense. Um, so that's a kind of come from a ritual point of view, the answer. But there's also a kind of theological 
answer there as well in terms of just how there we have so we have lots of textual evidence about so unlike i think your your egyptian um example correct me if i'm wrong i don't i'm no expert on this cell but there is a sense in which the the greek gods have to also be you know called or or their, their presence needs to be maintained as well in in the cult statue and that's you know in part what sacrifice is about it's it's in part what prayer is about about what what dedication is about you know I like the ritual approach because in in the descend the European descendants of these ancient pre-Christian practices by by which I mean the Catholic Church um you also get the statue being brought out once a year carried through the streets with a big festival but of course this is a statue of a saint or it's a relic or it's an icon in the eastern realm right so the exact more or less Ceteris Paribus the same religious practice of we have a day special festival we take out the let's call it say it's a relic in a nice reliquary we put it on the shoulders of like the young men of the village they carry it through the village there's lots of wine drinking and flower throwing and all kinds of stuff and it goes back in at the end of that day ritually parading the god through the streets right but theologically there's a whole huge edifice of christian theology which is of course saying no this isn't a god first of all secondly you're not worshiping this thing you're venerating it which is a big distinction etc etc mm. so on the ritual side if we just look at the ritual we think oh it's pretty much the same thing like if i read the account of the um the festival of isis where they carried the bark of isis through the the streets of various roman cities it mm. looks exactly like catholic festival in some spanish village in mm. the year 2021 when they carry the Madonna of the sea through the village on a boat. You know, it looks like exactly the same from a ritual perspective, but from a theological perspective, the understanding of what it means is completely different. Absolutely, yeah. The theological underpinnings really shift according to context. And one thing I probably should have said as well is the 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 various anecdotes that we have of cult statues moving or weeping or you know acting in certain ways as well. Tell me more. Oh, I mean, <laughs> that's pretty much it. <laughs> we've, we've got lots of often their portents as well. So it's it's in order to acknowledge something that has happened or give a kind of sign of something that will happen. You you get divine signs in Greece and Rome in all sorts of domains. But the cult statue acting in a certain way is a trope that that we we get often as well. Hmm. And it it just occurs to me now that is it in the Iliad when the women go to the statue of Athena with a nice fresh peplos and they're trying to basically persuade her to save the city to, to 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 stop helping the Greeks and start helping the Trojans is that right and the goddess turns her head away so they do the whole ritual and then she's she's like nah do you think we're meant to see this as the statue the the actual statue of Athena in the city of Troy turning its head is that what's going on I mean, I mean, this is about epiphany, isn't it? This is about yeah. how do the gods communicate to humans, and um, and and links it directly to what we were saying before about the statue. If the statue is the god, the, the statue is able to communicate in this way. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd like to take us back a little bit to the mechanical tradition because so much talk of cult statues, right? And and we, I introduced Terra of Alexandria, and I talked about how it's a it's a shrine to Dionysus, and you have a statue of Dionysus on the top of the shrine. So in a lot of ways, this is speaking. To, to what you know everything that we've been chatting about but I think it's worth putting a little bit of emphasis on the fact that Hera of Alexandria chose for that to be a god on the top of his his moving automaton right because it's all too easy to think that he was 
kind of Harold Alexander's often been attributed, been given lots of exciting roles in history, including the develop, development of the steam engine and robots, right? But the the choice to put Dionysus on the top of that object, I think, forces us to contextualize this a little bit. And all of this rich conversation about the ways that gods communicate with humans and the ways that this is part of kind of epiphany in ancient religions allows him to put that Dionysus on the top in a way that doesn't quite allow him to put a figure of a human uh, on the top of that automaton. Hmm. That makes sense. So I'm sort of glad we've come at this from a religious perspective, which is not always the, the perspective that, that people take with, with Harrow's text. Yeah, me too. I'm, I th- that it's very, very interesting. Um, and we'll, we'll definitely come back to this idea of the, the specifically the religious automaton. Um, I'm just wondering, well, maybe, maybe this is a good place to bring up the question of um, what certain interpreters want to call like religious fakery or uh, con artistry. And one, one thinks here of a later example, but the great Alexander the false prophet, as Lucian calls him, who has this kind of talking snake puppet thing that gives oracles. Glycon, the snake god, a favorite uh, figure here at the Schwepp, who, as far as we can tell, is a kind of like a, a marionette, but probably quite realistic one, but which founded an incredibly successful, genuine cult right with devoted followers and delivered oracles which is something people needed and presumably fulfilled other roles in people's lives making him a powerful and uh, beloved god in the black sea region so from the perspective of a lucian okay this guy's just a con man and and probably he was doing some equivalent of today's televangelist and being like you know glycon will save you if you put your money in the put an obol in the the box you know for your for your oracle or whatever. So there was a financial element involved. But do you think it makes sense to talk about this as as fakery? And going going back to, to the religious automata of antiquity, where you have these, um, you know, like even handbooks for making amazing working things that for a lot of people who see them are going to blow their minds, right? They've never seen a moving statue before. Nowadays, we would see a moving statue and just say, oh, moving statue, like how cute. Because we're we're used to stuff moving all the time, like machines that move, right? It's not. But would we? Well, but would we? Would there's we? still not some thalma. <laughs> maybe, maybe if the setting if the setting is set, I mean, there's certainly the uncanny, um, which still affects us, and you see this with when people make lifelike robots nowadays, right? That can talk and interact with humans, and people get the willies from it for sure. Um, when some kind of crazy doll-faced robot says, hello, I'm such a thing. I'm your personal assistant. How can I help you? And it's looking like a, a human woman. You're just going like, that's crazy. So that brings us maybe into Thauma territory, into sort of wonder uh, experience outside the normal everyday experience, if that's what we mean by Thauma. Um, but okay, so things that would have blown the ancients away, like a car, I mean, a car would have been the ultimate automaton, right? Put your statue of Dionysus on top of a car and drive it through the streets of Alexandria. You would have had a whole new cult immediately. Uh, But we just take it for granted. For us, it's not wonderful at all. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Can can I interrupt you? Please do. Please do. I'm busting. I think you've you've struck on something that's so exciting. And this is about about viewership. This is about how you understand a miracle, how you interpret a miracle. And part of what you're saying, I think, really links to debates around mechanistic conception. So the idea that once we understand how something works, once we understand, um, you know, 
what a wheel is and how a wheel works and these kinds of things that we're no longer impressed by by an, an item or a contraption or a gadget or a robot or whatever it is that uses these. Um, and I, I sincerely believe that there is something to be said for the fact that the world is not so binary, that you can understand how something works and still fall under its spell. And I maintain that this is also at stake in antiquity. And that, that saying that they, they, these objects blew their minds because they didn't understand how it worked is not necessarily the most productive way to think about things. Okay. Because, sorry, go on. Would it, would it be maybe safe to say that part of the reason it blew their minds to see moving statues is just because you didn't see that very often? So it would have been the, the, the uniqueness of it, at least part of it. Yeah, sure. So even if you understood that it was a mechanical contrivance, it would still blow that your mind. It, it can absolutely still blow your mind. And you can still see a kind of divine influence or a divine presence, even if you also acknowledge that there are clearly mechanical components to what is before you. Right. Right. So I think this kind of nuancing of viewership is important as well. Mm, that, I think, is really, really helpful. If, if what we're trying to do, which is what I really want to do, is try to get inside the heads of the theurges as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what is it like to sit in a room with a statue that's in sold and look at it and go, oh man, that one's alive and feel the kind of awe of being in the presence of the God. This is thinking in terms of, from the perspective of like third and fourth century Platonists like Proclus and Iamblichus, who, who seem to have had a um, incredibly, a phenomenologically very powerful engagement with these statues. And yeah. there's all kinds of uh, tales about them. So this was a, a form of epiphany Yep. but totally material in the sense mm -hmm. that you can see it, you can touch it, it's there in front of you. The statue is key to the whole thing. You can't just have a, a noetic god floating in the room with you. You need the material receptacle for it. So yeah, trying, if we're trying to get in touch with that way of thinking, I think this is a hugely uh, interesting conversation to have about. And actually, what your example before, Earl, which I, I cut you off and so we didn't properly unpack the Lucian example, is kind of perfect. Because what Lucian's text does is it shows you both perspectives. It shows you through these gullible worshippers the kind of Thalma that is uncritical, that I just see Glycon and I believe in Glycon. But also in Lucian's text, he unpacks the miracle for you. He describes how those miracles are, in fact, made. And that's the miraculous in that text has such a wide range. So, you, yes, you get the kind of cult statue, the miracle of the moving cult statue of Glycon, but you also get the miracle, medical miracles. So Glycon is a healing god, mm. and he is able to enact healing miracles. And there's something so interesting about the fact that he is, those must be genuine, whatever that means, you know, genuine in the sense that that must have been Lucian can, uh, can tell you he is a fraud because he's opening and closing the snake's mouth. But he also tells you he is able to make up this new ointment with bear's fat that is particularly successful at healing people. Right? Yeah. So there's this amazing kind of duality within Lucian's text himself. He wants to desperately uncover the kind of fraudulent nature of this cult. But at the same time, he himself is giving value um, and kind of authority to the miraculous in that, yeah. in that text. Yeah. So from a modern, very skeptical perspective, just to, to be the devil's advocate, you're going to want to say, okay, but Lucian didn't have a, a concept of the placebo effect. And he also didn't have a concept of human confirmation bias, which we know is often engaged in such 
activity so that the, you remember the ones who did get healed, but you don't remember the ones who didn't get healed because you just say, oh, well, they weren't, you know, devoted enough to glycon or whatever. So, um, however, your point is really well taken, and I think it's very, very interesting. Um, we have this tradition of automata. I wonder if you could just tell us about any other cool automata from antiquity, like religious automata. I want there to have been a giant statue of Athena that like actually could walk and it was like 20 feet tall and, and sort of walk down the street, but probably that didn't exist. But we did have some cool stuff, didn't we? Not, not quite what you described, but almost. Um, so the, the closest, when, when you described that, the closest thing that, that popped up in my mind was um, at a festival, um, it's dubbed in kind of modern scholarship, the, the Grand Festival of Ptolemy Philadelphus. Um, the grand procession of Ptolemy Philadelphus, I should say, sorry, um, part of a, a broader festival. We get a description in Athenaeus, but it is originally recorded in Calixenus, he tells us. Um, and it's the most lavish festival that you have ever read about. Um, the kind of volume of, of gold and silver and the people and, and that, that parade through the streets of Alexandria are just out of this world. Animals, wild animals, all these kinds of things. And one of the one of the um, parts of this procession has a cart with a statue of Nisa on top, so it's sort of like the wet nurse of Dionysus. Um, and she supposedly stands up of her own accord, pours a libation, and sits back down again. So you imagine as she's processed through the street, she's constantly kind of repeating this performative motion, and presumably the force coming from the wheels on which she is. And mm. um, so we get that's a kind of cool one. Another cool one, and that's earlier, is the giant snail. Uh, this is recorded for us in Polybius. Um, and it's supposedly uh, a giant snail that led the great Dionysia in 308 BC and processed through the streets of Athens, leading procession. So that's another great one. Now, the the kind of iconography, the kind of symbolism of the, the snail, um, I have to this day no explanation for. So um, if any of your kind of brilliant listeners have some ideas, please shoot them my way. Tell us about um, the giant mechanical snail, people. Yeah, yeah, tell us. Now, the, <laughs> so so they're, they're kind of, I think, two snazzy examples, but no kind of giant Athena uh, 20 yeah, foot tall. it's hard to make a giant. I think even today you could do it with robotics, but it would be tough. It would be a major task to make a giant 20 foot tall walking Athena that doesn't fall over. Yeah. Um, so we can't blame the ancients for not having come up with that. But it does sound like they came up with a lot of really, really cool, shockingly lifelike, as it were, automata. Now, the ancients, they, and maybe this is an a late antique issue and, and indeed a Platonist issue, but the ancients had different ideas than we do about what life is, what it means for something to be alive, um, I think. And so to take the Platonists, for example, and, and the Hermetists as well, the authors of the Hermetica, life is a kind of a stuff that exists in the higher realm. And things down here are alive because they partake of it. So, in other words, they wouldn't locate life primarily in biological stuff that moves, mm -hmm. um, because the, the life come the life comes to those biological things from elsewhere. Hence, it seems to me this is true in discussions in Aristotle and um, very true in the later Platonists. 
the the way you identify life is when you see something that moves itself. You say, okay, that's got soul. That's got life. So that the stars, for example, are obviously alive, right, to the ancients because they move and there's no one moving them. So they're clearly, they must have souls because a soul is that which moves itself. Nothing moves itself if it doesn't have a soul. So I wonder what light that casts on our understanding of mechanisms when there are things that kind of move themselves or even if they did they get a little input like something like the antikythera mechanism right you actually have to turn a handle to get it to move but once you turn the handle something really miraculous happens Hmm. where you could almost say the thing inside it is alive and turning Hmm. the handle just kind of sets it into motion but then there's life yeah, and that's exactly the way that all, um, that Aristotle uses analogies to automata, that you just need to put a, a little bit of human impetus to start the thing and then that it will have a life of its own subsequently. Um, and in fact, I, I, I probably should have mentioned that the automata met, uh, described in Hera of Alexandria both have that initial impetus by the human hand as well. Do you like wind up a spring or something for the Dionysus one? So um, it's a complex system, mostly of ropes wound around um, axes and things, axles, and with a weight at the end of the rope. And when um, you remove, so there's a, a kind of container with millet seeds or some sand, and then when you remove a kind of plug, the weight at the end of the rope starts to descend and allows for the, the various kinks in the ropes to unravel and to move things in that way. But you do need that initial human impetus. I'm intrigued by a kind of bringing together several different ideas, which may have no historical uh, relevance to each other, but certainly have an interesting kind of ideological relevance to me. In, in the ancient world, you had this idea of life as, mm. well, in, in philosophy anyway. In, in Platonist philosophy and in, in certain philosophically informed religious movements, that life is something in which living things partake rather than which is generated or, you know, sort of in just in living things and that's it. So Zoe for, for Plotinus, for example, just is one of the qualities that the noetic world is full of. It's full of life. And life comes to us down here in our bodies from there and comes to the stars and even comes to the elements so that's why the sea and the wind move the way they do because they're full of soul and soul and life are kind of coterminous in in Mm -hmm. plotinus so we have that on the one hand then on the other hand we have these mechanical marvels that move and i just think if we are going into the late into the late antique for a statue to be alive did it just make sense to the ancient Greek mind that a statue can be alive um, in, in a totally literal sense. For them, the, the stars are literally alive, 100%, right? So we're, we're not used to thinking of the stars as alive. Nowadays, we're very used to think, thinking of things that can move, but they don't have to have a soul inside them, right? So we have things like gravitation that cause stars to move. So we don't need to think of it in terms of being alive. But to the ancients, mm. it's by definition alive, because it's moving yeah. itself, right? So did it just make sense that statues, especially in the maybe in the context of the occult properties of certain materials, like we saw in that Asclepius passage, right? Like these herbs and spices and stones have yeah. these particular 
we would what we would call occult properties, what they would probably maybe call scientific <laughs> properties, you know, um, that cause souls to kind of enter, that basically generate life. You could sort of yeah. generate life with the right stuff. Mm. I love, I actually really love the materiality of, of this question. And it makes me think not necessarily of Hera of Alexandria's on automata, but he also has, he and, and predecessors have texts on called pneumatica, like pneumatic text. So this is about embedding the properties of air, particularly heated water, air, fire combinations into little objects that demonstrate scientific principles, but incidentally are always kind of miraculous in what they achieve as well. And in pneumatic texts, you have a big category of objects that are sort of sympotic vessels that allow for the pouring of wine and water in kind of miraculous ways. But you also have a lot of little figurines, often of animals, that are made to to, to look like they're uh, life like because thanks to these pneumatic properties they engage in some kind of like activity so that is birds will sing or animals will look like they're drinking thirstily because there's been a siphon inserted into the statuette or um, a snake will hiss you know which is clearly just uh, pushing air through a tiny pipe makes a kind of hissing sound or a gurgling sound or whatever but but it strikes right to the heart of your question about you know if it looks like it's alive, is it alive? <laughs> if it moves like, if it drinks like it's alive, is it alive? Um, the, the the wording, kind of the the uh, the, yeah, the the way that it's it's phrased in these in these texts it doesn't have this kind of philosophical intrigue about what is life. The mechanical texts are, are very particular in the prose that they use, but they do sort of say, uh, you know, what you'll have is you'll have a figurine and you'll have a siphon inside it, and then you will present say, a cup of water to the figurine or some kind of water to the to the animal and it will suck up, the siphon will suck up the water and, and the text does say as if it were thirsty, you know. So there is a kind of way in which we might interpret this as assimilating an action, a lifelike action as life itself, um, but there's also a real consciousness that it is thanks to the siphon that this is happening. Yeah. Right? The, the other kind of ideological strand that I find adds fascinatingly onto this discussion is work in modern robotics, where, for example, for a long time, the the search for artificial life was devoted mostly to looking for uh, artificial, like a computing intelligence that was, you know, sufficiently networked or sufficiently this or sufficiently that to the point where it would just become conscious and be like, oh, I'm an autonomous living being in silicon chips. Now I will... Uh, destroy the world and, you know, cue the Terminator. But what robotics researchers have found, for example, this is just to take one example. If you take a bunch of little, little tiny robots with wheels and one or two sensors so they can see stuff and just a very, very simple set of instructions like drive forward until you are going to bump into something. And then if you're going to bump into something, back up and then drive forward again and just keep, and that's all you do. That's what this little robot does. If you take like 50 of those little robots and release them on a nice flat surface, what happens is there's this emerging behavior where they start to behave exactly like a school of fish or a flock of house martins or something. And they, mm. they exhibit this schooling pattern, which is totally typical of living creatures. And they move around and they, they, they start to form shoals right? And so there's a whole school of thought thinking, okay, maybe this is how we look toward creating artificial life, not through fancy comp computational stuff, but through simple 
mechanical creations that interact with their environment in a certain way, and suddenly life just emerges. And this is the behavior that we associate with living things. This is not a behavior we see in grains of sand or uh, waves in water. This is something different. This is something we see in shoals of fish and flocks of birds, right? Mm. And so at what point do you say, okay, this is these are living things? And then I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Theo Janssen, who's a a Dutch artist who creates these incredible, well, living things called strandbeesten. They're they're beach beach creatures out of sort of PVC pipe. He makes these giant animated articulated creatures, and they're sort of motivated by the wind and water, and they just he just releases them on beaches and they sort of walk around and drink water. And then the water kind of gives them more motive power. And they just they just wander around on the beach, basically. And his argument is, well, these are living things. They're not, they can't reproduce themselves. So they don't have all the whole suite of properties that, that biological life has. But they're living things. They move. The only inputs they have for their movement are from their environment, just like other living things. So that whole kind of modern robotics art perspective on this stuff, on what might be a living thing, is intriguing to me. I don't know quite if I can make anything out of it, but it's intriguing to me to take that and also look at things like ancient automata and mm. um, living statues from mm. with that on board. Do you know what I mean? It's Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, I don't know that I can add much except for just bounce back something that, it, you know, as you were talking, um, struck me, which is it's a kind of reversal, you know, this, this, the relationship between, between art, between techne and nature, fusis. I mean, this is something that goes back to, to antiquity. And one of our earliest extant texts on mechanics, so it's not on automata, but it's, on, it's called The Mechanical Problems, and it's a peripatetic text, which means it's in the tradition of Aristotle. It was probably by, you know, a student of Aristotle's. Um, um, and it starts, it's, it's a, it's, it starts with a very interesting kind of philosophical proem before going on to describing various problems that one might encounter in everyday life um, and giving kind of mechanical solutions, as it were. And in this introduction, it talks about, it starts precisely at the heart of what you were talking about, about the, the relationship between nature and, and techne, and precisely about the relationship between the part of techne that is mechane, yeah? Um, and, it, you know, he, he actually quotes a poet, Antiphon, saying that, you know, we win through techne where we're beaten by nature. So it's a kind of reversal, actually, of, of what you're talking about. And I suppose it, it makes sense in a way that contemporary thought has gone back to nature as the source of everything. So that was one one thought that I had while you were talking. The other is about the very the very stuff of these objects, and we're talking about just in terms of other ways in which we can conceive of their liveliness, um, if that's a word. Which is we mustn't forget that the the mechanical objects that we're talking about, whether these are automata or whether these, as in theatrical, uh, processional, spectacle automata, or whether we're talking even about siege engines, um, were made of organic material, right? They were made of, of, of animal hides and of sinews and things like that. And so there's a way in which we can also conceive of these, the very matter of these of these machines as being somewhat alive, that I think links nicely to the, the, um, the passage with which you started. Yeah, you know this, this mixture of plants and stones and spices aiding in the in 
installment of the statue and mm. and thinking about a kind of battering ram being covered by an actual animal hide, you know, and seeing it advance towards your city. I think there's something absolutely magical about, about thinking about that from a material point of view. Mm. I wonder what your thoughts would be on puppetry and puppets, because mm. um, when I was thinking about an image with which to illustrate this interview, I came across the the so-called Burno Man, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong, B-R-N-O. It's in one of those, you know, East European languages that don't have a lot of vowels. But this was the, the oldest known puppet. It's from something like 25,000 years ago. It's carved of mammoth ivory, and it, it's an articulated statuette. And it was found in a grave. So people have been making automata, or at least, let's say, an image of a living thing that can move, right? And this thing was also, um, it was jointed. We don't know what the joints were because they're not there anymore, but they will have been sinew, right? For sure. They will, they will have been bits of animal, stretchy bits of animal that were attached to the different bits of mammoth ivory to, to make the joints. So this is taking dead animal bits, putting them together to create a living human being or a, a human being that can maybe use, be used in storytelling contexts or in some kind of enactment. I tend to think it was probably used around the campfire to, you know, when the, the really gifted storyteller of the group tells about the most re recent mammoth hunt that they went on and, and what happened. And, you know, so here's the guy and then he picked up a spear and then da, 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 this happened and, da, and here came the mammoth. Ah, you know, something like along those lines, maybe. Um, it's really bedtime hard. Story. It sounds like, you know, bedtime reading for me. <laughs> yeah. But um, I'd love to get your thoughts on just the fact that humans seem to want to create images of living things and then accord to them the status of living things in perhaps yeah. in a temporary way and 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 in a temp a perfect example of a temporary way is a cultic ceremony which has a beginning and an end so you enter the temple there's special temple rules are now in play you do a ritual you finish the ritual and you leave now you're back to the normal rules but in that ritual period you may perhaps interact with a statue which is in some way a living God that you can actually see in front of you. What's going on there? Okay. Um, I'm not going to claim to be any specialist on this, but I'll tell you who is. Um, Maya Muratov, in the classical sense, is an expert on this. So she, a um, long time ago, wrote a wonderful thesis on articulated statuettes, figurines in classical antiquity. And we have evidence of these, archaeological evidence of articulated figurines, which have often been called in archaeological reports dolls, mm. right? Um from at least the 10th century BC well into the Roman period. So this is something that clearly captivates the human imagination. And we have the fine spots for these are often exactly as you suggest funerary contexts and also votive deposits. So they have these two kind of very clear contexts in which they're found. One of the things that interests, that I think one of the ways that we can productively use these figurines um, is to think about the assemblage. And often we find articulated figurines in an assemblage where you also have so-called static, right, non-articulated figurines. So the argument that once you can make a statue that appears to move, you have no more need for a static statue is a complete fallacy. These things coexist. And the fact that these things coexist is in really interesting in its own way, right? So you can animate a statue in different ways clearly. The other thing, just going back to this dolls label, the I think one of the um, kind of one of the tendencies 
with call, or one of the problems with calling them dolls is that it relegates them to a category of of child's play as if you know, adult humans don't engage in an imaginative kind of animation or whatever it is. So I think it's more productive for us intellectually to think of them as articulated statuettes rather than dolls. The other interesting thing about the classical versions of these statuettes is that very, very often they have holes in their heads. So one would conjecture that it's for, um, for to be able to suspend them. And when you think about suspension of an articulated figurine, immediately the joints are able to move, right? Mm. Um, so this this kind of gives a little bit of support to the idea that yes, these this is in, intended to be able to animate the statue. The other thing that I might add then on these on these statues is that not all of them, but there are a lot of these statues statuettes, I should say, because they are usually pretty small, that are themselves in ritualistic poses, so sort of carrying a dedication or um, re- replicating a kind of ritual action in a way. I think that's really interesting for what we're talking about as well in terms of kind of mimetic, uh, ritualistic action here. If you if you are a worshipper in a procession who is holding this dedication, itself mimicking holding a dedication, walking, because as you hold it by the little string on its head or whatever, and it itself is kind of walking with you through the streets until you get to the temple where you dedicate or hang this figurine. There were kind of lots of the, a whole of mirrors effect happening here with movement and with ritual and with the human body and the artificial body. I think we need, we definitely need to get away from a, a like a sort of Protestant idea that religious action is efficacious based on a kind of like voluntaristic, you have to pray and you have to mean it. And that's the only thing that matters, right? Because if you can have a doll that can do your praying for you, and that's considered somehow religiously effective we're, we're in a very different mindset and i think here of the um you see this in tibet a lot they have these they call them prayer flags and prayer wheels but it's basically like the the the, the flags basically are these flags that have i guess prayers written on them but then you just hang them up and the wind blows the flag and as the flag moves that just the praying happens so you can have a kind of mechanical praying going on. And the same thing with these wheels. They're, you see them by staircases. And as people walk down the staircase, they just idly rub their hand along the wheels and spin them. And that's activating all these, you know, sort of Buddhist um, beneficial charms or prayers or whatever, sending them yeah. out into the universe. It's not like you have to sit there and do the praying yourself and think the words even. You can just activate the words. The words have power. Mm. And there's a kind of, yeah, and it kind of, from a new materialist kind of perspective, this allows us to to shift from thinking about the human as the center of it all, this anthropocentric kind of perspective, to giving a little bit of agency back to the objects themselves to be able to do things and be actors in the world. This is kind of the way in which new materialists think about objects. And also I love this notion of the the somatic energy, the bodily energy of the worshipper kind of interacting with the object and the object in turn then responding in, in the way that it interacts with the world. Because it speaks to what we're talking about, the impetus in the autonomy right you have the 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 human impetus but that then kind of sets off a, ch- a series of chain reactions that that extends beyond the body of the of the human um getting to late antiquity now because <laughs> in a previous conversation you mentioned that you think the material you work on which is really classical going right the way back as far as we can go up until more or less late antiquity 
is is something very different from what's going on with these insold statues in late antiquity in theurgy. What are the differences? What do you think changes? What's going on there? How how would you sort of make that concrete and talk about what's different from your perspective in the in this later idea of insoling statues? I mean, what I think. Um, sorry, I'm going to answer your question by not answering your question. How tricky. Um, I think what needs to be done is to not draw a direct line from the so-called automata in Homer to the so-called automata in Hellenistic texts to the so-called automata that you see in the insult statute. Basically, to let, let's not attribute the same name to all of these things, which exist in really different cultural contexts, really different religious contexts, philosophical contexts. So I, I don't know that I know the answer <laughs> to your question, but all I know is that I would be inclined to treat each of these as distinct until we understand what's going on and then maybe try to draw a kind of big historical picture. But to simply say that there is a, a kind of unidirectional trajectory, and in fact, often what is said is that that trajectory leads to modern robotics, I think is is problematic hmm. because you're combining a lot of different intellectual traditions, philosophical traditions, religious traditions. Technical traditions. Technical traditions. Workshop traditions, right? Like yeah. factory traditions, uh, mm-hmm. production traditions. One of the case studies that I kind of worked through during my, my doctoral uh, research that really helped me to, to think about viewership was the deus ex machina. In Greek tragedy, hmm. because this is something that, by all accounts, was visible. This is a machine, a kind of beam, um, trapeze, whatever, that was visible to the audience. And and given the performative conditions of ancient theatre, was seen. You know, there was no spotlight. You couldn't turn the black out the lights and just put the spotlight on on the actor so that you can't see the mechanism holding up the the actor. Yet there was real. You know, there was a real persuasion going on with with the deus ex machina so i think i don't know it's just food for thought in terms of being um kind of constantly questioning the naivety of the ancient mind when viewing technology versus kind of nuancing that with the plurality of 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 visualities that one can uphold at any one time i think in that context of of japanese traditional puppetry where you have these amazing puppets that are about three foot high, and you the puppeteers are on stage dressed as ninjas, basically, moving the puppets. But you just the the puppeteers, if they're good, they just become invisible. You just stop seeing them, right? Mm. But they're there. Mm. So it's it's not like they're really invisible. It's that you are convinced that the puppets are alive, that they're the agents, and they suddenly are. And you suddenly mm. forget all about these guys dressed in black who are moving the hand and moving the head and making the puppet look round. You know what I mean? Mm. That seems so. In this case, you don't have you don't see necessarily the person working the mechane. What you see is the god on the mechane, and you see the mechane. Yeah. And 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 at least I would argue that there is there is actual theological work happening in the machine as well as in the actor. Wow. Book forthcoming. Dot dot dot. <laughs> With that, until your book comes out, which we will, of course, link to on the podcast website the moment it appears, I will say, Tatiana Burr, thank you so much for speaking with us. And stay esoteric. Thanks,